everyone. Welcome to the 425th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And we're going to be talking about a lot of great stuff this week. We, well, some of it's great, some of it's not great. I can't believe it. Uh, We're going to be talking about IoT and retail and what that means for retailers, pricing, and privacy. We're also going to be talking about home robots because Kevin is on the show. And Microsoft has a pretty cool, is it an IDE? We, We can debate that. It's an extension for Visual Studio Code. Okay, well, that was really specific. So we're going to talk about that. There's also the Internet of Things. We're going to go through a brief history of the Internet of Things saving the bees. They aren't saved yet. We've also got some product updates from Wise, NXP, and Amazon, and Level. Plus, just because we feel like we have to tell you about all the security news out there, (laughs) Mirai, we're going to be talking about that. And our guest this week is Nate Williams of Union Labs VC. And he is going to be talking with us about, my gosh, what is happening in the VC market? It's a great time to quit your job, or if you were laid off from your job, it's a great time to start up a startup. So he's going to talk about what it's like funding in this environment, what categories are resilient. And finally, because we met doing the smart home, we're going to be talking about the state of the smart home. All of this and more await you. But first, a message from our sponsor. Are you looking to fast track your IoT project? Then you should join Particle at its Spectra event to learn why Particle is the fastest way to get started on IoT. As a leading IoT platform provider, Particle is committed to making IoT accessible to everyone. Their newest Wi-Fi module makes it easier than ever to get started. So join them on June 21st at Spectra for first access to the Photon 2 and hear all about the exciting enhancements they've made to the platform. Whether you're an experienced developer or just starting out, Spectra is where you'll find the latest information for Particle customers and users. Visit spectra.particle.io to register. Okay, Kevin, let's talk about shopping. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the retail sector has been really fascinated by IoT for years, and we've seen lots of both cool and creepy ideas hit this space. But we're seeing two trends really come out in force and actually make it to production. So the first is electronic shelf labels. And we've talked about these on the show. There's kind of two advances that are happening here. One is we're getting super low power connected devices that can act as shelf labels. So they're very cheap to deploy and the connectivity doesn't require a lot of battery changes. The other is we're actually getting legit over the air wireless power in formats that work for retail settings. So you can have like what looks like Wi-Fi access points along the ceiling that are charging those shelf labels that are, again, not using a lot of power. So what happens is you have these always on, always connected shelf labels that no one really has to touch. Yay. So that's the big driver in electronic shelf labels. And we're seeing Walmart deploy electronic shelf tags coming to 500s of their stores this year. So we'll talk about that in a second. The other trend is cameras and computer vision helping understand what consumers are doing in stores and where they are in stores. And this can provide some demographic information, but it also can help trying to understand like how long someone lingers at a particular shelf. So those are the two trends. Let's talk first about Walmart. What is Walmart doing, Kevin? Right. So Walmart has been testing some electronic shelf labels in a few of its stores, but it is now decided over the next 18 months to bring the solution to 500 more stores, which adds up to a whopping 60 million shelf labels. Their partner here is Vusion, V-U-S-I-O-N. Sounds like Fusion, but with a V. These are interesting because... I don't know how the battery technology works, but I what I think is neat is, aside from being connected so you can change the prices of things and so on, they even have sensors so they can detect if people are walking past or maybe staying in front of the product for a while. I mean, I get it. I don't like it because like pricing could change if you're standing there and like, hey, I'll give you a better deal and you get enticed, you get a behavior change, right? 
The pricing aspect is definitely scary. So there is an aspect of like implementing some coercive pricing, like, oh, you're sort of interested. Oh, this price doesn't work for them. Change it right now. So the idea that I could pay a different price than someone who comes along 20 minutes later who buys this product every week, that feels really dodgy. But at the same time, that's kind of what coupons were for. And okay, I'll just tell you, I used to clip coupons. Like I still would if I got a paper, (laughs) but A lot of times it would be like either I already buy this all the time. So, you know, I knew I wanted it or I was like, oh, this is an interesting thing. Let's try it out. So from that perspective, I'm like, oh, okay. I also don't think we're actually sophisticated enough to implement that kind of pricing strategy. But it is it is certainly a matter of concern. I generally agree with you, but I have heard reports that different people in different locations, like when they go to Amazon for the same product, see different prices. So that is true, but Amazon has a pretty sophisticated backend and strategy there. I don't know about the, like, is there going to be software that is doing that in the store and how, I mean, it'll get better over time, I guess. So I'm thinking about things like latency, how often it wants to flip the price tag. True. No, you do need a, the backend smarts to do that. And right now, if companies are just selling the tags and basic connectivity, sure, that's not going to happen. But I would imagine there will be platforms to run these tags that will mature to the point that Amazon does this. Yeah. Some things to think about there are like, hey, what about ahead of a storm? Maybe a good argument for this is if you can track inventory with these tags, some of the tags do have the ability to like track inventory. You might be able to say, oh, I've got some in the back. Let me pull it up to the front. But you might also start gouging people like, oh, Mm -hmm. this is. Well, that that happens today with regular pricing tags and whatnot. So, yes, I mean, it just makes it easier. Yeah. With less friction, your prices, you can do more sophisticated gouging, I guess, is what I'm worried about. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's one element. The other element is there's things like the pink tax, right? So women pay more for certain goods marketed to women than men do. Now, imagine if you see a man walking down your aisles and you really want to entice him, maybe you lower the price more than you would for a woman because the woman is probably doing her big weekly shop. I know this is incredibly Mm -hmm. sexist. I don't actually do the big weekly shop in my house, but these are the kind of decisions that could be made. Anyway. Those are some of the negative things. Some of the positive things are, yeah, you could get better inventory. Maybe you do get enticed to buy a new product. And it does save on, you know, people don't have to swap out those tags, which is a pain in the butt. They also talk about doing things like, hey, if you use like a grocery app or like doing partnerships with things like Instacart that would actually, you send your list to the store's big brain, basically, and then it'll flash a light anytime your smartphone comes near an item that you're supposed to get, and that helps you buy your stuff more quickly. Okay, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is related to cameras, and Kroger is bringing a partnership they have with a company called Cooler Screens to 500 of their stores. And Cooler Screens is a really interesting company. They've been around for a while. What they do is they make a screen that goes in front of the freezer display or the refrigerated displays in grocery stores or CVS, any place that has gas stations. And what it does is it shows you the product behind the screen and it gives actual inventory. So it's got sensors. So it knows exactly how many cans of monster energy drink are behind that thing. And it'll show you that. And it used to have cameras and those cameras actually use demographic data to like again, change prices or show people things they thought that person in that demographic area would be interested in. They no longer have cameras. (laughs) They now, according to their FAQ, they don't do cameras that track actual faces. They do cameras that track, they, well, they call them optical sensors that track like the height of an individual or the gait of an individual. They can still infer a lot from this, but they're not as, it's not as dodgy, I guess, for me. I actually like the potential implementation or maybe apparent implementation where you could, as a consumer, say, I want to see everything I can get here that's under 100 calories or low sugar or this or that and just 
you know, it just highlights these things, make it easy for people who want to make a more informed purchase. Yes. So you could get only Halo Top ice cream, which I've had once. Never heard of it. It's the worst. It was a big thing because it's like, oh, you could eat a whole, the idea is you could eat a whole carton of this ice cream for a small number of calories. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't buy that for a second. So you can, but you would never want to eat that ice cream because it's terrible. Oh, okay. Yeah. You can taste the lack of calories. Let's just call it that. So Blech. yeah. But if you were in that market, yes, that is kind of a nice option. Anyway, so Kroger is deploying these, Walgreens has deployed them, and so have Chevron and some other convenience stores. Yeah, it's basically an ad platform. <laughs> yeah, in fact, they talk about how many views their screens have received at the uh, the trade show that recently came up for like smart displays and whatnot. It's like blogging with page views. It's just, why? <laughs> Grocery stores are a great place to market someone. They're literally about to buy a product. Yes, that's true. Yeah. All right, so... IoT in retail. What does that mean? It also means those retail locations need great connectivity. And not every retail location has great connectivity. So broadband needs to be better. We need good options for massive broadband in these places because while it's not image data, it is data that's going to be latency specific. And some of it will go to the cloud, some of it will stay local to the store. But just thinking about that, because not every grocery store has great internet connectivity. But basically going forward, that's just going to be the cost of operations. So throwing that out there as an old broadband reporter. Let's talk about robots in your house. Ooh, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. So I have wanted like a, a true home robot for years, like decades. And wait, what does a true home robot mean to you? One that can get around the house can reach and grab things that I could reach and grab. So not like a Roomba. I mean, that is a specific purpose type robot. I want a general purpose home robot I have for, for years. And I know it's a wacky want, but it's just my thing. So don't judge me. We really haven't had that. I mean, yes, robotics in industrial is a big thing. Many of those I think are single purpose. Um, you could probably speak to that if I'm wrong, but they're really good at what they do for manufacturing and so on and so forth. I didn't think I would see in my lifetime like a true home robot like I have envisioned. But there is a London-based startup that was founded by, and I'm going to mess up his name, I apologize, Sharik Hashmi. He comes from OpenAI, and those are the people behind, you know the answer, ChatGPT, Dolly, woo! And GPT-4, all the AI stuff people have been talking about and trying for the last six odd months or whatever. So he's obviously got an AI background. In terms of the robot itself, he's got a few videos showing this robot, which they call Alfie, which Alfie's not due out for at least two or three years. It's hard to find any information from this company or from Alfie. Go to their website, prosper.org, because it's Prosper Robotics. It's like six lines of text and a link to DM them if you want a job. That's it. But he's got some videos out there, which are really, I think, amazing. Alfie is cleaning the kitchen table after dinner, he's, you know, scraping off food into the garbage, putting the dishes into the dishwasher. There's another video of it folding the bed. There's another one of it doing laundry. But even though there's AI involved here, Alfie is not all that smart just yet. And I get that. It's going to take a long time to train a general purpose home robot for these very varied tasks, right? It's totally different than a Roomba. He's a teleop robot. Yes, they are training it through telepresence. They are paying people to basically remotely control Alfie to do tasks and they have to, it will eventually learn to do them on its own. And that's kind of like the big gotcha to me right now. It's like, I don't want an Alfie in my house that other people are looking through and doing tasks because that's just not cool from a privacy standpoint. Although the company says Alfie's cameras will blur out any faces and any text that it sees, which is okay. That's, that's good. Uh, that's a step. I personally would like to be able to control it myself and train it myself, but I am clearly an oddball there. No consumer is going to buy this and want to do that. I get that, but... 
I'm not going to spend $6,000 to $12,000 on something and the monthly subscription fee, which probably goes to pay the teleoperator. <laughs> this is also true. This is also true. But I like my Manhattans made a certain way. I don't maybe Alfie, you know, I got to train it my way. I'm going to stop you right there. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know. Okay. So you're excited. I'm less excited. I've seen telepresence operated robots before. I get that this is how we may train them. Being able to train a robot this way is actually really compelling because it is way better than individually programming it because we do a lot of things without thinking about it that you actually have to think about to program a robot to do. So any other thoughts on Alfie? Other than I want one anyway? No, no. I, it's it's interesting to me be, that we've had this rise of AI lately and the person from that area is doing this. And I say that because the AI space is maturing so fast, so fast with these learning models. And I see that as a good thing when it comes to home robotics, but we'll have to see, obviously. Yeah. All right. Another cool thing, and this is actually a cool thing as opposed to like a cool thing that I'm like, eh, that's probably not going to happen. Aww. That Kevin found. This is not telepresence. This is real. <laughs> this is real. Microsoft's device script. I love it. I'm like, oh, I want to play. Yeah. So this is for people who like to prototype or play with IoT boards like Arduinos and Pies and so on. But it's Microsoft's approach for how to program these, which I think is good. You know, if you've used an Arduino, and Stacey, you went to the Arduino course, the syntax for all that. It's so archaic. It's just not modern. So Microsoft is calling device script, which they have out in GitHub. It's available for anybody to use. They're calling it TypeScript for tiny IoT devices. And it's interesting for two reasons to me. One, TypeScript is, for simplicity, I'll call it a superset of JavaScript. It's basically typed JavaScript where you have to define your types, your data types, among other things, but that's the big thing. And two, you can create things using object-oriented approaches, and that's not really the Arduino way. So it's far more modern, far faster. It's a programming style that most developers today are familiar with. And I really like the video that they showed, which obviously we can't show you here, but... We'll link to it. Yeah, we'll link to it. This device script can even simulate hardware. So if you have an Arduino board, it basically you can simulate an Arduino board with a blinking light or whatever. And then you could flash that blinking light software that you wrote in device script to the board. So it's really, really a neat looking tool. It is. All right. Let's talk about bees. IOBs. <laughs> IOBs. The internet of bees, it's a constant recurring thing because bees are a huge source of pollination. So we can't actually have food if we don't have bees. And Bees are dying, and this is a problem because we all like to eat. So over the years, we have had so many Internet of Bees options. The latest is a company called Satellite IoT, maybe? I'll, I'll go with that. Yeah, Combination of satellite and IoT. It's a low-Earth orbit, small satellite constellation. They use 5G standards. I think we've had them on the show. And they have the ability to remotely monitor beehives through satellite connectivity. And this is important because beehives are often located in places that don't have cell phone connectivity or Wi-Fi. So you need a satellite. And we've seen partnerships with larger satellite providers, but those are expensive. So this is basically cheaper. It's a cheaper way to monitor hives in remote places. And Apparently, still, even after years of talking about the Internet of Bees, only 15% of beehives are currently monitored, according to Ohio State University data. There's an aspect to this that I didn't realize until reading about it. I mean, if you're a beekeeper, you've got hives, etc. But you can take those hives to different farmers and use the bees to help the pollination process. I didn't realize that was a thing. Yeah, you, you truck them around. It's really stressful for the bees, but you rent out your beehives, you bring them a place and they you rent them out for like a week and they hang out in a field and pollinate and it's pretty cool. So this is not the only company doing this. Every major tech company has some sort of beehive effort. In 2019, Oracle created a partnership with the World Bee Project. They're using AI to create the Global Hive Network. It is a big coordinated hive monitoring project. Yay! Microsoft 
Microsoft has a project at its main campus in Redmond. They are working with a connected beehive company that monitors beehives on their property. And they use Wi-Fi to do it. They work with a hive company called Avioli to monitor these connected hives. In 2020, the EU actually concluded a project. It was called IOB, like (laughs) B-E-E. It was a project to look at how beehives could be monitored effectively. They came to the conclusion that the Internet of Things would be great for beehives, but most people who own and rent out their hives didn't have the sophistication or interest in really delving into the technology, so it really needed to be easier for them to implement. And there's dozens, there's smart hives, there's sensors, there's, you could use satellite, you could use Wi-Fi, you could use all kinds of things. And then There's a project called the Apis Protect Project. That is a device they make that connects to the bottom of a beehive. That's actually one of the companies that partnered with Inmarsat and is possibly more expensive. So I feel like there's actually even more beehive projects out there, but I'm not going to talk about them because there's so many. So Apis Project is one big one. OS beehives are big ones. There's also, that's enough. That's plenty. So a lot of bee action. And to me, it shows how long and how difficult it is, how we can see the advantages of adding sensors in places, but the the different ways to attack the problem and the specificity of the types of ways you have to attack it, depending on your environment and what you need. That's really what makes IoT so hard and why we've been talking about this for so long, yet we still are not monitoring most of our beehives. And it's kind of a microcosm of the macro issues associated with IoT. So that being said, let's talk about some small product news, because we're not going to solve the bees overnight. Uh, new product, Wisecam Floodlight Pro with, you got it, AI. <laughs> yeah. Vivint actually did a smart light, gosh, like a year ago, they launched one and it basically it's like, oh. If I detect a person, I'm going to turn on the light. If I don't detect a person, maybe I don't turn on the light. They also will sound a siren if things are actually suspicious. So there's a lot of cool things about bringing AI to this camera. Yeah, this is $150. And this reminds me quite a bit of the Eve outdoor cam that I tested last year, because the feature set is similar it's $100 cheaper, which is typical wise, come out with a similar product at a low cost. This is a fixture like the Eve outdoor cam. It's, it's hardwired. It actually has a local storage slot for up to 256 gig of micro SD for your recordings, which wise was getting away from that for a while. And now this one has it again. Yay. So yeah, go local, possibly because wise did just increase their subscription for their cameras. I think it's two ninety nine now, but so it's not like super. It is. It's two ninety nine a month. Yeah. Yeah. All right. New products in semiconductors. NXP has launched a brand new line of application processors. This is the IMX nine series. These are big old chips designed for gateways for IoT devices. So these will run Linux. The IMX platform is pretty time-tested. And as for security, they have their Edge Lock Secure Enclave that's on there. So that's helpful. This is something designed for, again, smarter things. This is not a microcontroller. This is an application processor. So you're looking for robots, network gateways, uh, human-to-machine interfaces. It's going to have Wi-Fi 6, Bluetooth. It will support Matter. So they've launched this. You can join the early access program in the second half of this year, and the broad availability of these chips and devices will be in late 2024. So this is the future. The future looks... Faster. <laughs> it looks faster. It, there's not anything that I was like, oh my gosh, this is indicative of like some huge new trend that's coming out there. I will say that it's part of the NXP 15-year project longevity program. So if you use these chips in your projects... They're guaranteeing support for them for 15 years, which is really important in the industrial space. So, yay. Yeah. All right. Speaking of longevity. (laughs) Or lack thereof. (laughs) Yeah. Amazon's Madam A celebrity voices are not long for this world. Yeah. Uh, Did you you buy any? 
No, you could buy like, I think they were like a dollar at launch and then they were like five bucks, but you could get like Samuel L. Jackson, Melissa McCarthy, Shaq. So you're not going to be able to buy them anymore and Amazon's going to stop supporting them. So they'll stop working on Madame A devices. So it used to be like you could ask if you had Samuel L. Jackson, he could tell you the weather and he'd be like in that inimitable Samuel L. Jackson style. Mm Mm-hmm. I can't say any of the words because there's a lot of curse words. There. <laughs> if that's your jam, Sam's your man. Yeah. So look, Amazon's clearly pulling back on things that did not make it money with Madam A and doesn't want to invest in more of this. I get it. So yeah, this probably didn't sell super well. And if you are really upset about it, you can ask for a refund and you can hear Samuel Jackson through June 9th. And then Melissa McCarthy and Shaq will go through September 30th. It's interesting, though, to me, like, I, I didn't buy it, any of these voices either. But it makes me question buying anything f- that would add some unique feature to my smart devices, because they can just pull the plug. And you paid for it, you know? If that feature isn't in hardware, again, this is why I think everybody should design with graceful degradation in mind. And, but, you know, if you paid five bucks and you got three year I don't know how long, how much it was. I understand that. Yeah, you got your money's worth for sure. But it's still, just the concept irks me. It leaves a bad taste in my mouth. It does to me too. But then I'm also, you know, like, I'm like, sometimes like, I might have like a favorite pair of shoes, and then they change the fit of the shoe. And then I'm like, oh, sadness. I mean, that's just the way the But the fit is. doesn't change to the shoes you already bought. <laughs> right. But eventually they'll wear out. So, like, to me, I'm like, okay, so this is worn out. I, I mean, I get it. It is different. Yeah, it's it's a physical versus digital thing. I get it, too, but I just, just, I don't like it. I know. We all don't like it. I'd say how much I don't like it, but I'd sound like Samuel L. Jackson, and we can't do that. Got it. All right. Well, Level, the company behind the Level Smart Lock, hey, now they have a doorbell camera. Who knew? And it's designed for apartment buildings. Multifamily is probably going to be the direction we see a lot of smart home tech going because there's interest, there's ROI, and normal people are just not buying smart home devices. So they're going to pivot to multifamily. So residents could use the Level app to look through the doorbell camera and speak with visitors. And it's going to have package identification. Right. So we wouldn't buy it as consumers. This would be something like if you owned a multifamily dwelling, you would buy and install and so, and it was based on their acquisition of Dwello in 2021. So, woo. Okay. Moving right along. Oh, Mirai. <sighs> Mirai. Everyone remembers Mirai. I the mean, bot all the that back. won't die. <laughs> yeah. I think it was 2015. Holiday, Mirai took out Netflix, and everyone woke up to the fact that, oh my gosh, there's all these old connected devices that just are really insecure. And then suddenly we cared about security, and it was good. So what's the latest on Mariah, Kevin? So apparently there's a new, I'll call it variant of the botnet. It's IZ1H9, for those who care. It can affect any IoT devices that are running Linux, which many of them do run some form of Linux. Interesting, though, to me is that it can spread not just through the good old Telnet protocol, but also HTTP and SSH. Which is really kind of scary, because those should be more secure. Well, it's not HTTPS, but still, SSH is secure shell. It's right there in the name. But eventually, if you get infected with this, your device could be open to remote access and code execution. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, before we hop out and do the podcast hotline, I should ask you, Kevin, um, Apple's WWDC is next week. And the rumor is, I feel like it's pretty, pretty common. One of the many rumors. One of the many rumors is that there's going to be a, a headset, a VR headset that's going to cost a lot of money and look very futuristic. $3,000, a lot of money. I will save up for the robot instead of that. Yeah. I mean, obviously we're going to watch it and hope for some home kit news, but I did want to ask your opinion I don't think this is it. And I think this is going to be a big misstep for Apple, which, you know, they've done in the past. They've had them. So just curious your thoughts on VR, AR, and headsets in general. 
Speaking about Apple in particular first, I would say it's 50-50. It could go either way if this gets shown off next week uh, or and or released. I don't know that it wants another misstep like the original HomePod, for example, which they ended up killing. I think it, this product could go that way. And the reason I say that, and this gets more to the general thing, is that I don't know what the compelling use case is yet. What's going to convince me to spend money to buy this and use it? And I don't have an answer to that because I haven't come up with one. I don't think there is one for most people yet. Yeah. And I don't think the hardware is really there yet. You know? Um, no, there's still maturity that needs to happen there too. Yeah. In terms of battery life and processing power and all of that. Like I just. That being said, I don't ever count Apple out of a market. Typically it will come in and put the best product out after others have failed. And I don't think there's been enough failures here yet for Apple to do that. But that's just Yeah. Me. You know, if you think about the iPhone, which amazing, right? Sure. What they brought to that was we had smartphones. I mean, we had phones with internet access and they brought, they basically pioneered haptic touch as the interface. And that was the big deal with the smartphone, right? Right, right. It wasn't resistive touch screens like I used to use on my phones and tablets. It was capacitive touch and that brought pinch to zoom and all these other things to the interface. They did have to seed an entire developer ecosystem. So I give them that. But it was clear that people wanted the internet on their phones, right? So I feel like the demand side was there and what they brought was some real hardware innovation. And I don't see the demand side here. And I don't remember or really think of Apple bringing hardware innovation without the demand. That is fair. They don't bring products to a market where they're not going to sell a bazillion items. I mean, that's just what they do. So yes, I would agree with you. Although we could use the smartwatch, the Apple watch, that was a slow burn, right? When they launched it, we were all like, woo, and then nobody bought it, right? <laughs> but now it's out there. They, they, they had the features. You so just called me a nobody. <laughs> well, no, I mean, did you buy one of the original first ones? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, but I also, I also was using smartwatches several years before that came out, even before the Pebble, the Motorola Moto Active, and some others along the way. So early adopter, that's why. Yeah. So I don't know if this is going to be an outright failure or if they bring it out and it's a slow burn, but like it does not feel like. They'll have to tell the story of why you want it. And that's the story that nobody has told yet. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I just felt like we should address that before, you know, this thing comes out. And if it doesn't come out, now you know why. Maybe Apple's having the same conversations. All right, that concludes this segment of the show. But let's go to the IoT Podcast Hotline, the section of the show where we hear from you, our listeners, and answer your questions. The hotline this week is brought to you by Kodelsky IoT. Are you implementing Matter? Kodelsky IoT provides the affordable expert help that you need to quickly obtain and easily implement your Matter device attestation certificates, which is the final step in your Matter journey. This is the security part, so it's really important. You can learn more at kodelsky-iot.com. Okay, so we're at the end of the month, which means normally we would announce a winner, but they still have a few hours to get in their calls when we record this, so... You'll have to hear our winner and our prize for June next week. I know. But in the meantime, you should still call because it's always going to be great. 512-623-7424 is what you'll call for us to answer your questions. And this week, we have a question from someone renovating their house. I love it. Let's hear it. Hey, how are you? I've been a short-time listener, I would say about three or four months. I'm into IoT, and actually, I'm getting my home renovated, probably 90% renovation. And that gives me the opportunity to rerun all of my low voltage and to actually set up my home the way I would like to from a smart home point of view. I guess my question is, what would you start with? But what would be more important to have in place in this scenario? Would it be the placement of Wi-Fi? Would it be the type of um, controller, be it Home Assist or the other ones that they have out there? Just wanted to know if you could start over from scratch with brand new wiring with low voltage and high voltage. What would you use and what would you put in place, and especially to establish yourself for future growth? Thank you. Okay. Home renovations. I can tell you that 
Whenever anyone renovates anything, they're like, while we're in the walls, we should do this. <laughs> and low voltage is a thing that in the past, I would have totally been like, yeah, do that. When we built our house in 2013, we had a CDA guy do all our low voltage work. But I actually don't think that's necessary anymore. I really don't. There's only two cases where I think it's necessary to have low voltage, unless you're doing like a really high end fancy situation. But even there, I was I was just at that Parks Associates conference and they had a builder actually talking about how they don't even really want to do low voltage anymore. In fact, the low voltage guys are hiring electricians just to do like everything. So the two cases where you might want it is if you're doing a media room, like a formal media room, and you want to wire up your speakers. That's a good use case for that. And then if you have like giant windows with big roller shades that are going to be remotely controlled, like I have big Somfy things, but they have to be really big because if they're small, you don't actually need the power because battery power has come a long way. Like my old house, I actually did do the low voltage wiring to control my roller shades. But in this current house, battery was fine because it just was. I've actually never used any low voltage products and I've survived just fine. I, I honestly, <laughs> I don't think I would do it either because it's not like it used to be five, 10 years ago. The, the battery, as you said, have gotten better and certain things can work. And when you install a lot of that stuff, a lot of it's still super proprietary. So it's never going to work with your new systems. And if you're going to do this now, I mean, the low voltage guys are not installing like matter certified products, right? They're installing weird proprietary stuff. And then you just have to add another hub to work with the weird proprietary stuff. So I would say unto you, don't. It, yeah, it depends on what you want. I mean, the, the home media room, if you want the best of the best, you know, in terms of audio and video. But other than that, I... Mm -mm. Yeah, we wired speakers into every room of our house and then controlled them with some Sonos receivers. And that was nice. But over time, it actually became kind of frustrating because it wasn't difficult to integrate into the smart home, but it, it was a little weird. Again, it was the proprietary nature of some of this stuff. So I wouldn't do it unless you have a really compelling use case. Yeah. And I know people are going to argue with me and y'all should. Y'all should tell me all of your <laughs> compelling use cases and... You know, maybe I'll rethink things. I don't know. Okay. I, I'm just, a, I feel like consumers are a fan of good enough when the costs align and the costs of doing that are pretty high. So, all right. That is our answer for this week. Give us a call at 512-623-7424 if you have a question for us and you'll be entered to win our June prize, which is going to be great. I just can't tell you what it is yet. All right, that concludes this segment of the show, but please stay tuned for our guest, Nate Williams of Union Labs VC. He is going to be talking to us about the current fundraising environment, smart home, generative AI, and climate tech. So stay tuned for that. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Nate Williams, who is the co-founder and managing partner at Union Labs VC. Hello, Nate. How are you doing? Stacey, it is always a pleasure to talk to you, sometimes on air, sometimes off the record, but I love reading every Friday, all the insights you have from the front lines of IoT, and I'm so glad to be here on your podcast today. I am super happy to have you. And I feel like we're coming up on like knowing each other for 10 years because I think I met you at August way back in the day. And if, if you want a little fun thing, I was just last week at an event for Parks Associates. And the idea of having service people enter your home, which was August kind of pioneered that idea and that business model, it's coming back around and it's going to hit in multifamily. Go figure. You know, it's sometimes timing is more important than being right. And so the program that you mentioned, and sometimes Michael Wolf mentions August Access, our thought was that a third party lock could be federated to help like put your package inside so it doesn't get stolen or to let the dog walker in, etc. And what we realized over the last several years is it's actually pretty expensive 
for a Comcast to keep coming to your house or UPS to show up again or in multifamily where you have to let your super in. So we're seeing these things. And I guess now that I have a different vantage point as a full-time investor, it's cool to see these things come to life. And there's a, like, you know, there's a little society of us ex hardware, consumer hardware folks that get to hang out. Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. So first up, you guys had your first fund. It launched in 2019. We talked about it. The whole goal was IoT and deep tech. Can you give us an update on where you are with your fund one and your upcoming plans? Yeah, absolutely. And and thank you so much. You wrote a story about us as we got going that really allowed people to get to know us. And just to rewind the clock, Chris and I had worked together since 2015. Chris was the co-founder and CTO at August. I was a three-time IoT entrepreneur for Home Greenwave in August. I was the CRO there. We became convinced when I was at Kleiner Perkins that venture capital changed. Venture capital went from people who were at Juniper Network, Cisco, Linksys, Intel, to people who are coming from social, mobile, local, or SaaS. And if you're doing a hardware startup or a robotics startup or AI startup, sometimes that background doesn't fit. And so we wanted to create a union at Seed and Pre-Seed to tie some of the biggest Fortune 1000 companies, telecommunications, consumer electronics, manufacturing, transportation, in with some of the most ambitious entrepreneurs. So we got the fund rolling with the support of Kleiner Perkins and Google Ventures. And yeah, to your question, we've now made 18 investments out of our first fund. We've led or co-led 11 of those investments, and we're happy to report of those 18 investments. 11 of them are either from immigrant or female uh, diverse founders. Really great. And then where we spend time is really in three main theses, climate, prop tech, or mobility. In climate, we're really focused on what's happening in the planet in terms of global climate change. We're funding companies that do things like food supply chain to reduce waste, whole home electrification. We even have a really interesting co-investment with Chris Saka at Lower Carbon that does wood recycling. So instead of transporting virgin lumber from Pacific Northwest, you can recycle wood here in San Francisco on the job site using a a multi-stage robotic system. The second bucket where we spend time is prop tech. And so, Stacey, that's where you and I have spent a lot of time with connected devices. So whether it's single family, residential, multifamily, or commercial, we work with companies that do spatial detection. We've got risk decisioning for construction, et cetera. So a lot of interesting things that are happening in the physical world. And then lastly on mobility, you mentioned August Access. We care about where people, products, and services are heading, whether it's in a smart city, whether it's in a transportation network. And so we're spending a lot of time thinking about what's new and next. So yeah, we're five years into it at this point, having fun and helping our founders. Some of those founders are now raising Series A, Series B, and then we'll be deploying a fund to later this year. Awesome. Okay. Maybe into like slightly less rosy news. Can you talk to people? We've got a lot of people who are seeking investments or probably have a really good idea and they've just been laid off. This is a great time to start a company. What would you tell those future founders and founders who are looking for their next fundraise about the environment? What should they know? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this question. Let me start with just a high level comment. It's a very choppy market right now. And so raising capital right now is very expensive. There are boom times and there's bust times. And what we're seeing, if we look at some numbers from Cooley, one of the largest legal firms here in Silicon Valley, we were in Q1 of this year, Q1 of 2023, at the lowest number of deals and the lowest amount of capital deployed since Q1 of 2017. So, you know, it's definitely tightened up. One of the reasons for that, if we think about it, just rewind the clock, we went through a period for multiple years where we effectively had a ZERP, zero interest rate policy, and money was effectively free. That money during lockdowns of COVID made public stocks, Peloton, Zoom, et cetera, just go off the charts. And then about 18 months ago, what we saw is that the public markets started correcting valuations to get more normal. But because private markets, companies that you call unicorns or others, they take longer to right regress to the mean. 
Now that's happening. And so what we see in the market right now is I'll talk about a couple pockets that there's a lot of prospect generative AI climate. But overall, a lot of the firms are in a defensive posture. They're trying to make sure they're protecting their current portfolio companies. And they're also being a little bit more aggressive in their due diligence to make sure they have conviction. So like three years ago, one meeting with a cruise automation engineer, they get a $3 million check. That's not happening anymore. So advice to founders would be, number one, it's an amazing time to start a company because first of all, getting additional team members is gonna cost a lot less. Secondly, you're gonna have the right amount of time to focus on a problem worth solving and you can never market time anyway. It takes seven to 10 years for a company to reach a realization. So I have no idea what the market's going to look like in 2032. It's better to start the company and get rolling. Two things that I say to our founders, Stacy, when they're going to fundraise, a lot of our founders are now raising Series A or Series B. Number one, you need to double the amount of time it takes when you're planning of how long to fundraise. So it's not two months, like double it whatever you're thinking. And the second is you want to increase the target list because not every fund is out there able to deploy capital. So people in venture talk about dry powder. Josh Wolf, a friend from Lux Capital, actually calls it wet powder. The term is from, you know, back in the day from rifles. If you have wet powder, you can't shoot the gun. Effectively, wet powder means you have committed capital, but that capital is basically holding for current portfolio companies. So everybody has a ton of money, but they're triaging their current portfolio companies. And so they've slowed down the pace of new investments. And so interesting time to raise. Remember that the capital might be a little more expensive. So therefore, be smart about what you're raising. And then be honest. Is this something you want to commit to five, seven, ten years of your life? This makes total sense. And I actually got started in my reporting career back in 2000. So I watched the dot-com bust crumple and it was bitter out there. And surprisingly, in 2008 and 2009, it did not get as bitter and awful as I thought it would be. So I'm kind of looking at this and I'm like, oh gosh, is this the moment? But for people who are in the midst of fundraising, can you talk about like what stages they should be at to raise a Series A or a Series B? And where is it harder? Because historically, it's actually been, I won't say easy, but easier to raise earlier rounds. So what are you looking for as you're asked to put in more capital? It's a really interesting question. And what ends up happening is the way to think about venture capital-backed startups as opposed to you know self-funded startups right, or franchise businesses, there's like a relay race. And you're going from pre-seed to seed to A all the way to D and later to get to an IPO. And as the markets change, the size of those hurdles change. And so, you know, a year ago for a software company, the, the thought was if you have a million dollars of annual occurring revenue, ARR, you're Series A fundable. But that's actually not the case right now in this market. So it's a really tough answer to say it depends but honestly, Stacy, as a friend, I would say it depends. When I invest in my team here at Union Invest in these companies, we're pre-seed or seed, where we're writing checks anywhere from 750K to 1.5 million. A couple of things that are in our mental model is, number one, we have to believe in the founding team, that the founding team is driven, technical, passionate, ambitious to solve a real hard problem. I think the two of us both know you know, starting these companies is just so difficult in the perseverance. I think of Jamie from Ring, right? Like, look at that story of being rejected from Shark Tank, multiple versions of the product, like eventually wins the market. That's just like resilience. So you need that. The second is market sizing data is always te like terrible. Like we're all right. I remember what was like a McKinsey report saying there'll only ever be 20 home PCs. Like they're always off. But I think you have to feel like if everything goes right, the company can be big in the way that like we all use Zoom or we all use Slack or a lot of folks have Nest thermostats. And then I think the other is quantitatively, there has to be points of reference of what the traction looks like. So in the case of like a business, I'll just give you like an example from one of our portfolios. We have a wood recycling robotics company, Urban Machine, that I mentioned to you. So like we need to get to a place on Series A where we have the per unit economics of what it costs for them to recycle the wood, 
and then a list of customers that have bought that wood at that cost per board foot. If we can prove that we can acquire the wood and we can recycle it and sell it back in a profitable way, there's more more dollars. And so I think for Series A, what we see with our companies that are currently in market right now is every firm has a different bar, but they want to see strong founders, big markets, and momentum. And the other, this is something for your audience because I love your podcast. I love reading every Friday. All the insights that come in is I think they want to be along for the narrative. And that's something I only learned since becoming an investor. I didn't know that when I was an operator. It's it's such a personal business. I feel like we never showed enough about who we were, what motivated us during the fundraising. I think you need to be more open about how you're running the business, the culture that you're creating, like what are what is the way that you're dealing with like motivating your employees. Like all that stuff is important because when the hits the fan, pardon my French, it's really the culture and the people that make the decisions. And I find that some of the best companies have the strongest cultures. Okay, well, let's talk about what feels resilient right now. If I stuck AI on top of anything, I feel like I could get funded. If I become Stacy on IoT AI, you'd be like, oh, can I write you a check, Stacy? And I'll be like, uh, yeah, I'm using uh, GANs to write all of my content. So I'm assuming that's resilient, but can you talk about AI and then also what else might be resilient right now? Absolutely. In terms of areas I would say are quite resilient right now, the three that are top of my mind, number one is climate tech in broad terms, anything related towards global climate change, electrification, direct air capture, carbon counting, ESG. That's number one. Second would be, as you mentioned, Stacey, quite eloquently, anything regarding generative AI, right? I think there was a tweet I saw this weekend that said 90% of the Series A companies getting funded are doing some form of AI. And I think third, which I find very important, is sort of American dynamism or defense. So companies like Sail Drone, companies that are, you know, we have a company in our portfolio called Urban Sky, which is stratospheric micro balloon imaging company. So I think those areas, given what we're seeing in the world right now, are not as affected by some of the headwinds in venture capital. And many would say, myself included, that the generative AI market right now is a little bit frothy. So in case anybody has a really good generative AI idea or any AI idea, what are the considerations and the questions you're asking when you have a generative AI startup in front of you? Like, how do you, I mean, it feels like any big company could just release a tool that obviates your entire business as a startup. You just nailed it. I think Mo is the fundamental like issue is like trying to understand what is the moat around the business, like if it's just prompt engineering or if it's just orchestration, the idea of a generative AI tool or you know, a large language model is going to have some major impact. You know, If we think of businesses like law, do you need a paralegal to track down case law? He, the paralegal doesn't need to do that because there's AI. I even think in implications of software development, we're going to see software builds with a lot less full-time engineers because of that. So like it's, it's happening and I think it's worth the hype. However, near term, if you're just doing a scrape to get a corpus of data regarding, Hey, this is the best reviews of all the smart home devices. And then you populate it into like a recommendation engine. Anybody can create that. So I think there has to be some special sauce. I think the other part is, and this is something Stacy when we talked, when I was getting union rolling that I really didn't fully understand is, and I see this now because I just see so many more startups. Like, right. I see somewhere between 150 and 200 startups a month, which is at the end of the day, a human buys a product from another human and the human needs to convince other humans to use it. So if it's a robot in a warehouse fulfillment center for, you know, Nestle, it's not the robot that's the problem. It's the orchestration of how that robot gets into a work stream with other people. And they all have different personalities and incentives. And so the question I think more people need to ask is, so I can build this awesome generative AI tool and it's going to solve, I will never need a travel agent. I'll never need a school counselor. Like I'm a parent, I have three kids. Like I won't have to help them with algebra. Okay. 
how do I buy it? How do I package it? How do I price it? How do I do onboarding? How do I handle questions, right? All those long tail things. And it feels to me like that's some of the areas where if we poke on some of the startups that we see, we just don't get great responses. Like what's the moat? No, we're just, we're, we got on this first. We're just going to out execute. That's, that's really hard. Like look at Lyft and Uber, how much money they had to raise to compete effectively for fungible, like on demand, like transportation. That's not really the way. I have to ask because you're an old smart home guy. I'm an old smart home gal. And I feel like the industry, we haven't seen anything really new. It's matter was our, the last big kind of big story in this space. And it feels like we've hit either a wall or the trough of disillusionment. I'm not sure. So where do you stand on that? Probably just a disclaimer, since your audience is so diverse, that I got my start in smart home in the year 2006 as an analyst at Intel doing due diligence on a company called iControl Networks, which is effectively half at Comcast Xfinity Home and half at Alarm.com. So I've learned my lessons and scars across three startups. To your question, I would say the thing about smart home it's almost like an infinite task. It's never completed. So I actually think the bar of perfection is always going to be too high. And so therefore people attention span have moved on since, you know, smart home to crypto to web three now to generative AI. So I think that's hard. I also think now, because I'm not a direct participant as an operator, I do think we still suffer from some of the things you've written about in the past, Stacy, that we've talked about on panels, which is like this triangle of like affordability, usability, and reliability. So I, I probably said it at a Parks Associate panel or GigaOM panel like 10 years ago, like we've gotten the cost down and I think matter can also drive the cost down, great. So like, are they affordable? Can the average consumer buy smart home devices? Of course, right? Like plenty of like $29 gadgets. But then the question is like the usability is still pretty, right? Not great. And so there's different like streams and different apps and everybody wants an app for everything. And that's terrible. And then we think of the reliability. It's like the Jeff Bezos with the you know voice command. If you can't do it 99.9 times, they're not going to use it. Right. And so I feel like every time you hit the switch to open something and it doesn't work, or you get a false alarm on the Nest Cam, it just ruins your confidence. And so I would say as an industry, it feels like we need to do a better job of coordinating how we market the smart home. And also, there feels like a little bit of chicken egg that's always happened between service providers, insurers, utilities, etc. Like, hey, we want this to happen. We just don't want to pay for it. And so one of the things, Stacey, that we've invested in I, that's not public yet, but I can talk in broad strokes is we have uh, backed a whole home electrification startup. And we actually think one of the accelerants of smart home technology will be, you know, the electrification happening in the homes because like these distributed energy devices like Spans and Tesla Powerwall will drive it a, a new type of home architecture, which you're so familiar with. And I think actually that's a use case, like saving energy, saving money that could actually drive higher adoption. It's the $64,000 question. I am not smart enough to know the answer, um, but I, I remain somewhat a fan of smart home and hoping that my fellow uh, brothers and sisters in the smart home have some great companies. Me too. And I, I'm with you all the way on electrification. That is going to be a big driver, a lot of money going into it. I'm a little sad because we don't have a compelling standard to make all these things talk together and it is expensive. So I worry that we're just setting ourselves up for another round of hype and then ultimate disappointment. We'll see. Okay. Well, Nate, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. I really appreciate it, Stacey. If folks need to reach me, it's nate at unionlabs.com or at Nate Williams on Twitter. 
Okay, so thanks everyone for listening to this week's Internet of Things podcast. I really appreciate it, as does Kevin. And if you want to find out more information on the Internet of Things, you can find it at my free weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday. You can sign up for that at www.stacyoniot.com slash newsletter. Or you can just visit the website for all of those stories published a little bit later. Thanks for listening and have a great week.